Welcome, welcome to Not a Hoax, Not a Dream, the podcast about comic book characters who just don't quit. You can try to write them off, but they'll just get written back in. You can try to kill them, but they'll just get better. I'm your host, Ben Rathbone, and I'm recording from the faraway planet I was just unexpectedly astroported to. Yeah, you heard that right. That's astroported. It's like teleported, but it has astro in it, so you know it has to do with astrology. When, when I got here, they immediately asked me for my birth sign, and when I told them, they said I wasn't the chosen one since I'm an earth sign. They're locked in an everlasting war with an army of robots, and only a fire sign can save them, I guess. I, I don't know. It sounds like they need to work on their outreach process and criteria, but who am I? Anyway, third episode of the second season. Hope you enjoyed the first two. It was really fun talking to the podcast Checkered Past and then Dr. Sai Islam and Dr. Gordon Schmidt. Those guys are all a riot, so if you haven't listened, highly recommend. And the guests are going to keep coming from here. Next episode, I'll have the SJW Comic Book Club on to talk about one of the greatest X-Men events of all time, the Dark Phoenix Saga. But right now... While it's just the two of us, or however many there are listening, how are you doing? Hopefully your answer that I cannot hear is an okay one. I'm doing pretty okay myself. I had a lot of fun reading the early stories of today's character. He's an interesting dude. Pretty rough around the edges, but definitely worth learning about. So, without further ado, let's jump into the history and adventures of... The comment. Welcome. This is Stanley of Marvel Comics warning you to look around you, your classmates, your friends. You never know which one of them may be a mutant, a person born with strange and wondrous powers. Now, some mutants, like the X-Men, use their special gifts for good. But then there are the terrorist mutants who plan to destroy the human race. Mutants. I hate them. The year is 1940, and the golden age of comics is upon us. Action Comics and Superman have whet America's appetite for superhero adventure in the funny books, and a multitude of publishers have risen to the challenge. Among them include American Comics Group, Crestwood Publications, Gilberton, Dell, Fawcett, Charlton, Harvey, Timely, and MLJ Magazines Incorporated. If none of these names are ringing a bell, you might know some of them better by their later names. Timely famously became Marvel decades later, and MLJ Magazine would eventually become Archie Comics. They chose the name as a reference to their signature character, Archibald Andrews, who first appeared in 1941's Pep Comics No. 22, alongside his friends Betty Cooper and Jughead Jones. The Riverdale gang would soon be the publisher's most popular characters in the years to come. But we're not here to talk about them. Instead, let's kick it back to the first issue of Pep Comics, when Archie Comics was still MLJ Magazines Incorporated. When Pep Comics No. 1 hits the stands, the world is at the start of a new decade. It's also at war. And even though the United States wouldn't enter the global conflict for another two years, national security was still the preoccupation of the nation. Enter The Shield, G-Man Extraordinaire. He appears on the cover of Pep Comics No. 1 in an obviously super patriotic costume more than a year before Captain America. But we're not here to talk about the S.H.I.E.L.D. either. There was another superhero to appear in the B story of this book, who would be noteworthy for a very different reason. Guinness World Records has identified him as the first superhero to die in a comic book. His name is The Comet. Pep Comics, Pep Comics. Number, one. Number, one. Number 1. The Comet by Jack Cole. 
The very first Comet story opens to the titular hero flying through space in his costume, a red and black suit with yellow stars and moons illustrated on his sleeves. The suit envelops most of his head while he wears a strange glass visor over his eyes. The subsequent first few panels describe his origin. John Dickering is a young scientist who has just made a remarkable breakthrough. He's discovered a gas 50 times lighter than hydrogen that can be injected into a person's bloodstream to make them lighter than air. John does this to himself, which enables him to leap astounding distances through the sky. He gets a little carried away, though, and after shooting himself up one too many times, he finds that dangerous amounts of the gas have accumulated in his eyes. Deadly disintegration rays now fire out from his eyes at all times now, like, constantly. Shit. John finds that glass is the only material his eye rays can't penetrate, so he fixes up a glass visor to wear, predating X-Men character Cyclops, who would years later use a similar shtick to control his optic blasts. John realizes his gas could have disastrous effects on civilization should it fall into the wrong hands, so he destroys the formula and vows to use his newfound abilities to help humanity. Origin over with, the curtains of our tale open to a house in Chicago, where a group of no-goodniks discuss their next criminal enterprise. The plan is simple. They're going to talk to beneficiaries of large life insurance policies and offer to murder the insured, in exchange for half the payout. But wouldn't the authorities catch on to them pretty quick? Not a chance. See, they have a secret weapon. Typhoid fever germs, supplied by their mysterious boss. All the victims will appear to have died by disease. Sometime later, headlines declare that a typhoid fever epidemic has swept the city. I guess there's a lot of spouses and family members in 1940 that would be fine with their loved ones dying in exchange for money. But at least one dude isn't a fan of the idea. When the bad guys reach out to him, offering to off his wife, he calls his friend the Comet for help. And with the speed of light, the Comet pierces the night. Comet visits his friend's house, during which time one of the criminals pay another visit, seeking an answer on the offer. Instead of an answer, he gets the Comet's fist. The thug flees, driving off in his car, and the Comet gives chase. The hero snaps up his visor to disintegrate the air in front of him. This causes a smokescreen, hiding him from the man he pursues. Once he's followed the car back to the hideout, the Comet crashes through the roof and starts busting heads. He demands the murderers reveal their boss, but they say they never met the guy. Comet discovers a list of everyone they've delivered the typhoid germs to. He disintegrates the house and threatens to do the same to the gangsters if they keep up with this shit. He then goes and saves everyone on the list. He just, you know, looks at all the names on the list and tracks them down and makes sure they don't take the typhoid. Comet hangs out in Chicago for a bit and after a few days catches one of the criminals carrying a satchel of typhoid germs. Are you fucking kidding me? After getting the location of the new hideout out of the man, Comet follows through with his threat and disintegrates the murderer. The new hideout is on the top floor of the Tri-State Building, which is no big deal for someone lighter than air. He just jumps up there. What is a big deal is the plate glass surrounding the walls of the hideout. Comet smacks into the glass and is knocked unconscious, like a bird. It isn't entirely clear how they knew glass was his weakness. Maybe they just like glass, maybe just coincidence, who knows. Apparently they don't want to have to clean up a bunch of broken glass as they pull Comet's body into a corner before shooting him. By this time, Comet has waken up and he kills everyone in the room before they can open fire. He then follows a bunch of trained delivery pigeons back to the suburban home of Dr. Archer, the mysterious boss of the murder insurance operation. 
Comet carries the Doctor up into the air, and when the man yells to be let down, the Comet says, As you wish, Doctor. The world has too many of your kind already. He drops the criminal to his death. And so, with the gang demolished, the Comet flashes away on another errand of justice. Another thrilling Comet story in the next issue of Pep Comics. Man, that Comet, he's a feisty one. Uh, what would we do without him? We'd all get typhoid fever, that's what. And no thanks to that. I mean, if one ignores the fact that we appear to be dead, it's almost peaceful. Are we seriously fucking dead? In Pep Comics number two, Comet heads to Florida and foils a plot that could have been right out of a Scooby-Doo episode. It involves this goblin head in the sky that's being created by a zeppelin and special effects. Comet uncovers the mastermind of the plot, an old dude with a monocle named Satan, and blows up the zeppelins. In Pep Comics number three, we find out everyone in those blimps died a terrible fiery death. This, obviously, convinces the police that he'd make a great cop, and they invite him to the force. Comet says no thanks and flies off to take a nap. While napping, he's kidnapped by Satan and hypnotized. He's commanded to rob a textile factory and to hate law, to hate the police, and to kill anyone who tries to stop him. Man, a few of those things are terrible. The comet goes off to do as instructed, and when the police arrive, he screams, Police! I hate police! He unleashes his disintegration rays at multiple officers, killing them, and then blows up their squad car before flying off with the cash. Eventually, after subjecting Los Angeles to a wave of additional robberies, the comet accidentally frees himself from the hypnotism and disintegrates Satan. However, by this point in time, he's become a public menace and enemy to the police. Throughout the rest of his appearances in Pep Comics, cops are always trying to shoot him. And arrest him. But mostly shoot him. At some points, they might spot him flying high up in the sky, but nonetheless fire bullets into the open air trying to get him. They lose it every time he shows up. The term shoot to kill is used at least twice. Like, they just hate this guy. In issue 5, he partners up with Thelma Gordon, a newspaper woman who thinks she can help restore his public image. The two team up to take on all kinds of corrupt bad guys. She eventually becomes his love interest, and the two would end up engaged. Many of the evildoers the Comet foils are fat cat capitalists looking to abuse their workers or renters for an extra buck. When appealing to their better natures doesn't pan out, he's forced to get tough, such as when he traps a slumlord in one of the man's own structurally unsound properties, lights it on fire, and doesn't save him until the landlord promises to remodel his buildings. In issue number 12, the second story slot after The Shield is taken by a bizarre feature called Danny in Wonderland, about a boy who is abducted to a fantasy land by a tornado. Comet is moved to the sea story. Not the best of signs. By issue number 14, in a story credited to Lynn Streeter, Comet's secret identity John Dickering starts to look remarkably like Clark Kent. By the end of issue number 16, his penultimate Pep Comics appearance, the Comet has struck fear into the hearts of corrupt businessmen and evil criminals alike. Has this helped restore his public image, or made him an enemy to the status quo? As the tagline to the story in 16 asks, Prison bars or the grave? What fate does the Comet meet when he faces retribution? 
Don't miss the comet in next month's Pep Comics. Pep Comics, number 17. 17. By Cliff Campbell. A sibilant mocking laugh pierces the thick drapes of gloom. Then a sudden beam of light. The shadows of a gallows. Grim reminders to the conscience of the underworld that the paths of crime lead only to the hangman. Appearing before us is the hangman himself, a dude in a green jumpsuit and black mask with a hangman's noose wrapped around his waist. But who is the hangman? Seriously, who, who the fuck is the hangman? I was expecting my dude, the comet. Oh, I, I guess he's here in the next panel, dropping off this mobster to the police. He has to do it quickly, though, before the cops try to shoot him again, as always. Before he hightails it, though, he manages to tell them that his secret alter ego, John Dickering, will testify to bring down the entire criminal family. While he doesn't tell them that he is John Dickering, he... you know what I mean. Comet heads home, where Thelma has been waiting for him. They had a date, and Comet stood her up. She's not happy about it. In fact, she's not happy about him being the Comet at all, even though that's something that never really bothered her before now. She tells him he should hang up the costume and marry her so they can be happy. The Comet refuses. He needs to make amends for the lives he's taken and the crimes he's committed. Shortly after, John's brother Robert stops by. He strolls into the apartment without being invited and then wanders into John's room as he's undressing from his Comet costume. Oh shit! Hey bro, you're the Comet? Yeah, I'm the Comet. Why didn't you knock? Wow man, my brother is the Comet! The two catch up. Robert has just graduated with his masters and decided to check in with his brother. John has an idea. While he's off doing Comet stuff, Robert can keep Thelma company and take her out about town. Sounds good to them. Meanwhile, the evil mobsters are scheming to kill John Dickering before he can testify against them. A few days later, Bob and Thel come home to John doing some kind of test in his lab. Bob scolds his brother for neglecting such a beautiful woman, and John is like, Hey, sounds kind of like you're in love with her, which offends Bob. Thel tells John he shouldn't joke about such things. As Bob is storming off, a bunch of gangsters stop him on the street outside and ask him if he's dickering. Bob says yes, and the thugs force him into a car at gunpoint. The Comet blows out the car's tires before he can get far, and Bob makes a run for it. When the gangsters take out their guns to shoot Bob, the Comet draws the fire so his brother can escape. But the bullets find their home in the Comet's abdomen, and our hero falls to the ground. Bob sees this, and something ignites within him. He rushes back to the scene and punches out the gangsters. When the cops arrive, Bob picks up his brother and runs back home. Sadly, there isn't anything they can do for him except lay him down on the couch with pillows and sheets and listen to the dying man's last words. The comet gives Robert and Thelma's relationship his blessing, and then after a short scream, he is no more. Bob decides that he will carry on his brother's mission. He uses John's lab to create his costume, and then sets out to bring his brother's murderers to justice, eventually taking things to the top of the crime family, hanging the patriarch himself. The closing note of the story reads out, Well, boys and girls, how do you like this unique and thrilling feature? We stewed and cooked our brains for months to give you something new, and different. We think we've achieved absolute success with the hangman. Do you? Do you like him well enough to want to see a magazine of 64 complete pages of brand new Hangman adventures? If you do, write to The Hangman, room 315, 60 Hudson Street, New York City. Man, 
I was just starting to like the comet, too. No, I'm serious. I, I read all 17 of his first appearances thanks to the Digital Comic Museum, a website that archives public domain Golden Age comics. And I gotta say, I enjoyed a lot of them. They're very dated, but that's part of why I like them so much. This era of comic books famously had no oversight. There was no comics code, no rating system, kids could just grab these things off the newsstand and they might get a wholesome bit of wartime propaganda, or a horrifically violent crime story, or they could get pages of harmful racial stereotypes. Difficult to say. In addition to the lack of censorship, there were a lot of them. Publishers were just throwing superhero concepts at the wall and seeing what stuck. Finally, despite what you may have heard, comic books weren't just for children, even then. The readership was larger than it ever would be again, and a large part of that audience included active military servicemen, as well as adults of all other occupations. The combination of all these factors made it so that you could have a superhero who would just disintegrate criminals without a second thought. And I respect that. The stories I enjoyed the best, though, were the ones where the comet fights avatars of capitalist greed. As the kids say, the comet is... based. A lot of the earliest Superman stories were the same way. In Action Comics number 1, we saw Superman terrorize a corrupt politician, and in a later story, he convinces a bunch of evil businessmen that he's taken them into a dystopian future they helped create, in order to shock some sense into them. When you think about it, it's surprising superhero comics don't intersect with politics more. After all, what do we really need saving from? Besides disease and natural disasters, the existential threats that plague us are usually bad governments and corporations. You are familiar with the thought experiment the ship of Theseus in the field of identity metaphysics? Naturally. The ship of Theseus is an artifact in a museum. Over time, its planks of wood rot and are replaced with new planks. When no original plank remains, is it still the ship of Theseus? Secondly... If those removed planks are restored and reassembled free of the rot, is that the ship of Theseus? Neither is the true ship. Both are the true ship. Well, then we are agreed. 25 years later, the world has moved on. The U.S. entered the war. The war ended. A new nuclear age is upon us where humanity has harnessed the power of the atom and used it to manufacture weapons. Earth's elite take their maps and carve them into pieces, attempting to determine the fates of nations they think can help them in their global game of chess. MLJ magazines may have changed its name to Archie Comics, but the publisher hasn't given completely up on superheroes in favor of teenagers. In 1964, while their competitor Marvel Comics is bringing the cape superhero back into the zeitgeist with characters like Spider-Man, Archie Comics has its own superheroes one of which is named The Fly. Spider-Man and The Fly. I wonder who wins that one. In The Fly number 30, we're introduced to a new incarnation of the comet, with a wildly different look and separate power set from the one in Pep Comics. This comet wears a rainbow-colored costume and comes from an alien planet far away. He's basically here on Earth to pick up chicks. When Fly Girl, the target of his affections, doesn't make the cut, he flies out of Dodge. He comes back soon enough. In 1965, Archie Comics decides to create a super team out of their licensed heroes, akin to the Justice League and the Avengers. They even tap Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel to write the thing. The team name is the Mighty Crusaders, and the new comet makes the cut. But maybe this comet isn't new after all. 
Is it possible that the comet from the 40s and the comet from the 60s are one and the same? We find out in a strange backup story found within the pages of The Mighty Crusaders, number two. By writer Jerry Siegel, penciler Mike Sikowski, inker Joe Giella, and letterer Sam Rosen, with additional art by Paul Ryman, editor Richard Goldwater. Now, in response to a torrent of requests, Radio Comics presents the most sensational origin tale of them all, the origin of the comet. The opening splash page shows us the comet, like the original one, in his black and red costume with the sleeves of stars. Hey, nice to see him. It's been like 25 years. He's flying in the action, disintegrating heavy artillery with his I-beams, or as the shocked villain calls them, the Savo Vision Rays. Hmm, that's a new one. Don't know if that name will stick. What does the old comet have to do with the new comet? Well, turns out he is him. They're the same guy. Yeah, as the narration says, Look back a couple dozen years to the golden age of comics when the comet wore an entirely different uniform. How his flashing form terrorized the doers of evil with his incomparable comet powers. Aye, unbeatable he was. You know, except that time he was gunned down in the streets by a group of mobsters. But this comic conveniently doesn't mention that at all. No, the, the way they tell it, the comet became more and more famous over the years, right up until he disappeared from the face of the planet. After the comet destroyed a bomb that would have obliterated all of North America, an unrelated gigantic fireball plummeted from space, consuming our hero in its flames. Instead of killing the Golden Age protagonist, the comet finds himself in a regal court filled with strangely garbed men, with a majestic woman sitting upon the throne. She's dark-haired and regal, as beautiful as she is impressive, and she wastes no time before introducing herself. You have been astroported to the planet Altrox at my command. I am Nija, ruler supreme. I am not frail like your Earth women. I'm no cream puff either, sweetie. The tougher the opposition, the better, says me. The comet begins punching everyone in sight until Nija pleads for him to stop. She goes on to further explain why he's here. You see, they've brought him here to ask for his help. They've been able to watch his adventures through their monitors, so have seen firsthand his fighting prowess. It's these skills that they are in need of. Altrox is a place of war, beset by beings of living metal called the Mechs. Nija's people have driven armies of the creatures off again and again, but the mechs have learned from every encounter and are now immune to Altroxian weapons. But guess what they're not immune to? That's right, the comet's Dissolvo Vision. Uh, yeah, we're, we're still calling it that. Our hero swoops in and quickly vanquishes the advancing mech's forces. It's very impressive. So impressive that Nija falls in love with him. They get married, and the comet decides to stay on Altrox, where apparently the atmosphere will allow him to live for millions of years. Pretty good setup, if you can get it. All's going well until the last living mech shows up and tries to assassinate Nija. The comet unleashes his powerful Dissolvo vision upon the monstrosity. Or, rather, tries to. See, the atmosphere has taken his powers away. Permanently. He's able to just barely stop the final mech, but not before it's mortally wounded Nija. The comet inherits his wife's regency and becomes the new supreme ruler of Altrox. He changes his costume, since he's lost his powers, and the old uniform would only remind him of his greatest failure. But the new costume allows him to fly too, and it can fire lasers out of his fingers, so that's cool. 
The comet finds himself using Altroxian technology to watch the events on Earth, just as the Altroxians once watched him. The mech's threat now ended. The comet decides he must return to Earth to defend it from dangers internal and external. He astroports himself back and joins the mighty crusaders in their battle against evil and injustice. The end. Well, glad he's okay, I guess. Not clear how he survived being shot by those gangsters, though. Maybe he faked that whole thing, or maybe that was a different comet, like a Earth-1, Earth-2 situation over at DC. Who knows? After the Mighty Crusaders series ends in the 60s, the team would show up multiple times over the years. The licensing of it all is weird, but they come back in the 80s, the comet included. Later on, DC somehow ended up with a license to publish the characters, and there was another series in the 90s. There was apparently also a title named Crucible that featured the comet. In it, he destroyed his home city and is presumably upset about it. The Comet and Friends were, according to Wikipedia, worked into DC continuity around the time of the event Final Crisis, and in 2012, Archie Comics published The New Crusaders, again using the characters. So, it's only a matter of time before we see the Comet again. I mean, maybe. Perhaps the next time, we'll be on the big silver screen. But, probably not. And that's a wrap on this episode of Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. Thanks for joining. You can find us most places podcasts can be found, but you probably know that because you're listening to this right now. If you're interested in following us in a non-audible social media type format, well, I'm not sure why you would do that, but it's an option. All those links are in the show notes, including our Patreon, where you can send me a dollar a month to help me build an evil goblin zeppelin that will terrorize Florida but only for good reasons. I have demands, and they know what they are. Until then, always remember to check your mail for typhoid fever germs. See ya.